Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Marked Safe, tales of your very favorite and most beloved man-made disasters. On Marked Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Marked Safe. Hey, you. Hi. How are you doing tonight? I'm wonderful. I'm sitting by my beautiful Monstera, so life is good. Oh, so nice to be surrounded by plants. I have 15 beautiful plants. I just got a, a plant app, and it keeps count for me. Oh, that's awesome. I water them, and it tells me I'm a good plant mom. I feel like, you know, now that we're in this whole COVID situation, all I do is walk around and stick my finger in soil and talk to you my plants. You weren't doing that before? Not as much. Like, my plants are probably really tired of being fingered. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. So we are doing this uh, podcast. I'm really excited about this. I am too. It seems like it has been gestating forever, but the idea actually was what five weeks ago yeah and here we are that's our baby that's our one month gestation baby oh it's fully developed though yeah so why don't you tell everyone what we're doing so i am brianne and i'm melanie yeah she's (laughs) melanie and we are starting a disaster podcast about all the horrible things that happen in the world Things that fall down when they're not supposed to, things that go up when they're not supposed to, things that blow up when they're not supposed to. Everything horrible. I love it. I mean, I don't love it, but (laughs) I kind of love it. I love telling you stories about it. I don't love that the stories happen in the first place at all. So the formula will be, um, Brianne, since this is your baby, you started off with this idea. You'll tell me a story first. Then next week, I'll tell you a story, and we'll just rotate like that. Do you have your story picked yet? Uh, for next week? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a good one, for sure. I can't wait to hear it. It's not the first one that you had planned, is it? It's something new that I don't even know about? No, I went back. It's you definitely, back. It's definitely okay. the first one. Well, people are going to love that. That's a really, really good one. I cannot wait. What do you got for me? I have the... Indiana State Fair stage collapse. Oh, this is going to be so good. It is. It's going to be good and it's going to be horrible. And I mean, hopefully I'm not going to get sued by Sugarland. Do they sue people? I hope not. <laughs> we'll find out. They get sued, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, are we ready to get started? Oh, tell me about it. I'm ready. Okay. You have some kind of beverage? Yeah, I have. Well, I probably should lay off the coffee, but I'm going to drink this water here. No, never lay off it. Miles to go before we sleep. All right, so I'm going to tell you about Sugarland and stuff falling down. Sugarland was originally a country music trio. It was a founder and two other people, and the founder split in 2005 from the other two. And there was kind of a generic PR statement about her wanting to spend more time at home 
and, you know, just take a break. But it was speculated that she was either forced or paid to leave for, quote, image reasons. Now, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's it's a little gross. I couldn't find for sure what this meant anywhere. And this is 2005. So the Internet was still kind of a baby. If this were now, Lord, I'd be able to find everything. But I couldn't find for sure what exactly image reasons are, so I figured maybe I could figure it out myself, and I googled pictures of Sugarland the trio, and there's a, the founder definitely had a different aesthetic than the other two. She seems a little bit older. I think she was maybe 10-ish or a little bit fewer years older, and she's just got kind of like a rocker mom look. She's a little bit heavier, a little bit older. She seems rad she seems like somebody we would hang out with um aesthetically anyway i don't know what her personality but what the music industry well especially back then hated exactly and the other two had a much more traditional i guess look so i don't know yeah exactly i don't know if that is what that means and i am speculating but it certainly seems possible. There was a big lawsuit, actually. The original, I didn't write down her name, the original founder sued the other two and it was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. So now there are two and it is Jennifer Nettles and Christian Bush. It's I hate a, undisclosed amounts. Oh, me too. I want to know the amount and I want to know the details. But... Now there's Jennifer Nettles and Christian Bush. It's a man and a woman. They're not married or coupled or anything. And they are, they were a pretty big band. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they've got name recognition. They're still pretty big. So in 2011, they were on their Incredible Machine Tour. And I really want to know, and I guess I could have found this out maybe, but I didn't. It's kind of a creepy name when you know what comes after it, but then it's like, it depends on where you put the emphasis. Is it the incredible machine, like a machine that makes incredible stuff? That's not creepy. Or is it the incredible machine, which sounds like a big, creaky danger machine like their stage? Well, I so. think, I think you know, just for, you know, the sake of the story, it's got to be the creepy way. Uh, yeah, it, it's definitely the creepy way in my head. I, I believe that's what it is. So, it is the year 2011. It is the Indiana State Fair. And they it, there's an audience of 12,000 waiting to see Sugarland perform. The weather is a little dicey. It's windy. It's questionable. There's a thunderstorm warning. And Sugarland, I guess at the time was notorious. I didn't check and see if they still are. I guess at the time they were notorious for these big elaborate sets. I don't know exactly what the industry standard is, is as far as that, or if it's you know really that far from typical. But apparently it was a thing. Their set was thirty-five tons. Oh nearly wow! Fi- yeah, that's huge. Nearly five stories high. And I mean. It's enormous. That sounds were, really big for for a state fair. It's huge. I mean, that includes, you know, the stage, all of the lights and rigging. And I really am curious to know, and I guess I should have found out, what a typical 
stage and rigging and everything is because this seems huge and in the picture it looks huge for a state fair like you said but I don't know for sure what standard so 35 tons five stories high Sugarland was set to perform at 845 and I don't know if I mentioned this is the state that I live in this is Indiana yeah oh I yep. guess we should tell people like we are virtual friends. We've never actually met. You're in Indiana. Oh yeah, that's a good that's a good introduction to that. Yeah, I'm in Louisiana. We are really far apart, but yeah, that's good old. We were we were in a big huge mom group years ago and it imploded. It imploded <laughs> and made a smaller but still pretty big mom group for which was the best thing in the world for a while and then it imploded. Yeah. <laughs> and, There's uh, no man-made disaster like a mom group on Facebook. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> There's, you know, the lifeboat for the the core people who want to rise from the ashes is smaller every time. So now it's under 200 people. And so far, so good. We just it's keep getting closer stuff. and closer, the smaller uh-huh. it gets. Uh-huh. I don't think it's going to get smaller, but I mean, if it does, I think it's just maybe just going to be me and you in a messenger thread i don't know we'll be we're stuck together now there's no getting (laughs) rid of me i know we've gone into business so yeah here we go there's a video of the stage collapse and it is absolutely surreal something about the lighting and i mean stop and pause this right now anybody who's listening to this and go watch the video because the visual aid you need to watch the video and if you are anything like me i don't like to see gory videos i don't like to see bodies i I do i will watch the videos and stuff that accompanies this kind of thing but i don't want to see you don't go out seeking it no well i mean I, i would seek the video for the stage collapse but if i I would want to know what I was going to see before I watched it. So if anybody's thinking about watching it, I'll just tell you now. There's no gore or bodies or anything. It's it's horrifying, but there's nothing like that. With so, you being sorry, Brian, with you being in Indiana, how close were you to the um how far away did you live from I where I was supposed this? to be there. You were supposed to be there? I was supposed to be there, but the weather got funky, so we decided not to go. Probably smart, right? Uh, yeah, we weren't supposed to be at Sugarland, but we were supposed to be at the fair that night, and it, we just didn't want to spend the money on it because the state fair is honestly kind of expensive. We didn't want to spend the money on it if uh, it was just going to get rained out. So, and then after what happened, we didn't. We ended up skipping it that year, which is probably the only year we've ever skipped it. And how far were we? Oh, I would say twenty minutes max. Oh, so you're real close. Yeah. So. Watch the video. That's that's my aside about that. And now that hopefully everybody is back from watching that, holy moly, it is surreal. The stage is lit up against these massive storm clouds. Everything loose on the stage is just blowing like crazy. And the the way the light is, like it almost looks HDR. It's it's surreal. Right. And on top of the stage, there's this giant tarp. And I mean, don't think about a tarp that you take camping because this is this massive stage and it covers the entire top of it. So it's huge. And you see the tarp going crazy, blowing in the wind. And then it gets this huge gust of wind and the tarp rips off and it's just hanging by a corner. 
And when that happens, the wind is not stopping. So basically then we have this massive tarp having kind of a parachute effect. So the wind, it's creating all this drag from this huge wind-filled tarp on top of the stage. It was so scary looking. Oh my God. The wind was 60 to 70 miles per hour. And I guess this a stage... It should have been able to handle about that as far as as far as the building code goes. But the stage, I, th- I read that it had started slipping somewhere in the 30s. I think maybe it was 33 miles per hour, which is not good. It was supposed to be able to handle, I think, 60, 65 miles per hour. Sounds like some shortcuts were probably taken. Uh-huh. Yep. Spoiler alert. So at... 8.46, right after the tarp rips off and starts this whole parachute effect thing, the stage collapses into the crowd. And it is enormous. And it is just steel beams, metal beams. It. Ugh. The shock I, and horror on everybody's face. I mean, uh-huh. it's just... I can't even... I just feel like there aren't words for this. And I can't do justice how it looks when this massive massive thing just collapses into a crowd so i will read this brief paragraph from indianapolis monthly that describes it much better than i can it says the tarp covering the structure rippled violently and the entire assembly began to sway picture a five-foot stage swaying Big cannon-shaped lights up in the rafters rattled, and as he watched, a suspended circular LED screen began to swing from side to side like a pendulum. Cables attached to the topmost corners of the structure dragged large concrete slabs across the parking lot next to the stage. Jeez. Holy shit. That's scary as fuck. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, imagine large concrete slabs dragging across a parking lot. I don't know what I would do. I honestly, I'd probably just stand there frozen. uh So a lot of what I'm going to tell you in this story is absolutely horrible. And this is probably a a disclaimer that is going to come up a lot in this podcast. I mean, this is awful stuff. And I never want to be flipping about that. I was glued to this coverage nine years ago when this happened because it just freaks you out when you're supposed to be there and this happens. Right. So I took in every horrible detail about this. And then before I started researching for the episode, the thing out of all these news stories, all these articles that I read at the time that had actually stuck with me the most for almost a decade was how the people present responded immediately following the collapse. And if you watch the video, the stage hits the ground at 14 seconds. And there are dozens of people who obviously when it starts collapsing, everyone close to it's running away, everyone who can. It collapses at 14 seconds and at 17 seconds, dozens of people are running toward it, which is beautiful. I mean, three seconds, you know, the the dust hasn't even settled and people are going back. And that that's crazy. I mean, you I don't want to set the bar too low here. You would expect people after a couple minutes and they've, you know, done a head count of their people and everything, you would expect people to go back at some point. But 
three seconds. It's that fight or flight, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, yeah. So, there are more stories of heroism than I could possibly begin to tell in this story. I, we would be here all night. There are hundreds of regular people that instantly, literally instantly, rushed toward the rigging and started lifting it off of people. There is no telling how many lives were saved by this. Uh, the article that I mentioned earlier that I read from about the concrete slabs. Yep. It is, the Indianapolis Monthly piece is an excellent long-form piece. I cannot recommend enough that you read it because it gets into several of these stories that there is just not room for in we, this because. <clears throat> yeah, we should link that up on our social media. Too. Yes, absolutely. It's an incredible article. But there's just, there's so much and it's so meaty and there's so much good stuff. I don't want to just recount the same article. And they're just, this, this would be a three hour podcast, just telling stories about the heroics that went on in this. There, you have to remember the stage weighed 35 tons. Obviously no one person is lifting this entire stage, but this is not lightweight rigging we're talking about. These are heavy steel beams i wonder how much adrenaline played in that like oh. you you know you hear about like uh -huh. the mom lifting the car off the kid i don't know if that's a myth but you know where the, the, mm -hmm. your adrenaline just gets so pumped like you mm -hmm. can do super amazing things wonder if some of that had to play in that oh it had to the thing that gives me goosebumps about it though is that in those stories that you hear about it's always you know a mom lifting a car off their kid these are for the most part total strangers I'm sure that people obviously ran back in after their people, but just about every story that I read about it was just total strangers. It's so beautiful. I know. I, I literally have goosebumps right now. We could use more of that in the world. Uh-huh. So at the next year's fair, Governor Mitch Daniels said there was a hero every 10 feet, but I would say it was a lot more than that. People were working together shoulder to shoulder to free people from underneath the wreckage. I mean, there were lines of 10, 20 people just working together to lift things off of people. And that included a 10-year-old girl who was found by a nurse. When they found her, she was not breathing. The back of her skull was crushed in. Oh, my God. And she was 10. And she was showing... The physiological signs of being, you know, in the process of, of dying. And her mother was pinned under some metal somewhere, I don't think, very close. Her mother was pinned under some metal with a crushed pelvis and numerous other major injuries. And her mom was eventually rescued by Good Samaritans. But this nurse found this 10-year-old girl with her skull crushed in, really almost dead, and told the ambulances, she's dying, you have to get her out of here. And she was able to get her onto one of the first ambulances out. And after weeks in a coma and months hospitalized at the Children's Hospital, she was released. Oh, and my God. Really? Yeah. And from what I can gather, she's doing okay today. Oh, my gosh. God bless that nurse. I know. And her, her poor mother, bless her heart, I cannot even fathom. Her mom didn't know where she was, if she was alive or dead, what had happened to her until after everyone was at the hospital oh my gosh i didn't even think about it because it's probably just pure chaos uh-huh you know they're not doing like name check or anything yeah like that. no but i guess the second they pulled the stuff off of the mom and she i should have written down more about what injury she had 
I know she had a crushed pelvis, but it, her injuries were horrific. And the second they had it off of her, she was asking where her daughter was, but nobody knew. Fortunately, she was transported to the hospital early on. But, you know, without that, there's no way I don't think that she would have been alive. Holy shit. So whose fault is the stage collapse? Because it can't just be the wind's fault. Everybody says that they told somebody else to delay. Who made, who made the parachute tarp? It's that person's fault. <laughs> Good question. I don't know. <laughs> Just about everybody in this story gets sued, so hopefully the tarp company did too. It, it seems safe to imagine they probably did. Right. So who do we have here passing the buck all around in a circle? Uh, we've got Cindy Hoy, the executive director of the fair, law enforcement, Sugarland themselves, Helen Rollins, their tour manager, fair representatives. Uh, fair representative said they asked Helen Rollins, the tour manager, twice to postpone. And according to them, both times she said no due to scheduling concerns. She said that Jennifer Nettles took 30 minutes to warm up her voice. They were playing the next day in, I think, Iowa. And they were concerned. So allegedly she said, no, we're continuing. Sugarland says that no one ever asked them to postpone or they would have. And they also said that making the call and evacuation wasn't their place, which is fair. Is there I, is their tour manager still their tour manager? I don't think so. That is a good question. I, I tried to look her up and I feel like if she was, she would have been easier to find. Right. So I, I wouldn't say no for sure, but I don't think so. So... They said that it was not their place to decide, and I think that that is a fair point. They said that as entertainers, their obligation is to say, yes, I will perform a show at this place at this time. And it's it's not their call to make safety judgments or anything like that. And so maybe it's not. They just made a statement saying that they're they're just robots. They do what they're told. Yeah. And some people have said... Some sources say that they had access to a Doppler weather radar and full knowledge of the storm. And I mean, look at the video. It looks awful. It, it You couldn't. It was rough. Well, even I mean, you were saying it was dicey. So you guys chose not to go. So yeah. it doesn't seem like it would take a rocket scientist to right. make a decision whether or not to cancel it. So. And they had a Doppler? Like, I, I don't know. Allegedly. I don't know. But a bunch of sources say that they had a Doppler and knew. As time went on after this incident, Sugarland seemed to deflect more and more. They kind of, they had tweeted something within minutes of the collapse, which is a little weird to me personally. Maybe I'm being a dick. They had tweeted within minutes and it was just kind of a standard, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers for Indiana. We're fine, but not everybody is and so, as so on and so forth people are saving other people they're backstage tweeting it it reads that way oh that's a little vomity it it reads that way oh it gets worse so they start with you know just standard thoughts and prayers kind of stuff and then over man, probably weeks and months first they say they didn't know that anyone had suggested postponement. Everybody says that they told somebody else we had to postpone and that person said no. Everybody. So I don't know. Um, it does seem to... I don't think that they're 
are details released about the eventual legal outcome of this necessarily but a lot of sources it seems to come down to the tour manager more than it does others although the the fair director did catch some pretty serious heat so then they say they didn't know about the suggestive postponement and then later they say well it wasn't even their call to decide and then eventually not them but their attorneys said that it was quote their own fault regarding the victims wait 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 they're victim blaming now uh-huh i mean literally it says their own fault and that the victims failed to exercise due caution for their own safety and oh that's super I, problematic it is and i don't know how much of that to put on sugarland because they didn't say it necessarily their attorneys did but ultimately you're hiring somebody to represent you yeah so if that person that's representing you is saying something like that unless you come out back out and say exactly hold up but if they're not doing a rebuttal then i mean go fuck yourself Uh uh-huh see we're both gonna get sued it seems to me that they are co-signing on that statement i mean for all i know they think it's horrific i don't know but I can't find anything to make me think anything other than that they are co-signing on that statement. It definitely seems so. Mm-hmm. The attorney for the widow of one of the victims stated, Sugarland's response is a carefully crafted legal document that inappropriately attempts to distance the band from the responsibilities incumbent on the show performers as to the safety of their fans. And this spin doctoring of Sugarland's role in the case is both offensive and outlandish. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this, oh man, this next part, I can't. Am I going to get pissed? I'm pissed. I'm already pissed. So I did not find much of anything as far as backlash against this. So I don't know if this didn't bother anybody else, but it bothered me. Three days after this tragedy, the band credited Helen Rollins with the fact that they walked away unscathed because Helen Rollins decided to hold a last minute prayer circle and they were saved by her instincts. How tone deaf can you possibly be? The people that died or were injured, they probably just didn't believe hard enough, I guess. I maybe that's it. Maybe uh, Helen's instincts did not extend to them. Now, I understand, you know, that kind of, oh, that kind of, I missed a plane because I got stuck in traffic and then the plane crashed, thank God, kind of feeling. Fair enough. I don't blame him for that. But publicly saying that it was her instincts, her instincts would have been her saying, holy shit, let's postpone this show. Right. It doesn't count as your instincts if a bunch of people die and have their lives just destroyed. Because you decided to hold a prayer circle. Stop. It's super, super messy. Yeah. And I, I do not, I could not find much about that. I just found that in an article, just very matter of factly. I don't know. I don't know. That, I, that didn't, that take did not age well. That's for sure. And I'm wondering too, cause you, you know, you said, you know, it's, it's, before like the huge blow up of social media so mm-hmm. maybe that kind of played into kind of the we'll just let them slide on this one yeah because i feel like that would never fly now <laughs> never and shouldn't it shouldn't 
So seven years after that, Sugarland said that they weren't allowed to be human about it and weren't allowed to talk about it because of legal stuff, which fair enough. I understand them not being able to say things, but I'm not sure that means that they needed to say the things that they did. Did they sign uh, like a non-disclosure or something? Well, there are lawsuits and we're getting to that. Okay. But so I assume that there were things that they couldn't talk about in the course of that. But it seems to me that the problem is less what they weren't saying and more what they were. So, eh, I'm not giving them a pass on that one. In October, Sugarland did come back to Indiana. This was in August. I don't know if I said that. In October, Sugarland did come back to Indiana and hold a free benefit concert for the victims. And then in November, 43 lawsuits were brought against Sugarland and others. Ooh, that's a lot. That is a lot. And that includes everyone from the people who made the rigging to Sugarland themselves to, I mean, just you name it. Sugarland went on hiatus in early 2012, and there would be eight years between their last release, The Incredible Machine, and their next album. This, it seems, they they are definitely spinning it as they just coincidentally wanted to take a six-year break but it seems to me that this kind of destroyed their career they got canceled before yeah they got canceled before canceled was a thing yeah their 2018 album bigger had five percent of the sales that the incredible machine did which definitely some of that is going to be accounted for by the differences that have occurred in those six years and how we consume music no doubt People just aren't buying albums anymore, but 5%. Mm. So, yeah. I wonder how much they got caught up for having to pay. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. And coincidentally, maybe that's also why they took a hiatus. Like, is there a time limit on when you have to pay someone? Well, I don't know, but I don't think that the lawsuits were settled until... I'm skipping ahead in my notes here, but I'm pretty sure it's 2015. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. But that is, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But they they did a couple interviews about their comeback, but it doesn't seem like they came all the way back. So now I am going to tell you some things about the victims. And I want to have a little caveat here called... I don't, obviously this is a disaster podcast, it's heavy, but I don't want to make this so heavy that it's just miserable to listen to, but there is something voyeuristic about a disaster podcast. It's, you know, it's a little bit rubbernecky, and right. I think that it's it's pointless not to acknowledge that because it just is. Well, it's just like that phrase, like, you're, you're watching a tra- train wreck, you uh-huh. can't look away, you know, yeah. you naturally, like, are drawn to these things. Yes, it is. It's human nature. God knows why there are, you know, all kinds of theories about why, but it's human nature that we want to look at these things and know about these things and fall down these Wikipedia rabbit holes at two in the morning. And I I feel like I, I, I want to think about these stories in terms of if I had lost my spouse or child in that accident, would I be upset that this episode was made right and you know you have to assume when you're talking about that that the person is 
on board with the concept of kind of a lighthearted disaster podcast in the first place. But given that I obviously am, if that if somebody was at least okay with that premise, that they would feel that the story was not vultury or disrespectful to their loved ones. Exactly. And when I'm listening to podcasts, I really prefer ones that center the victims in the story. So that's where I want to go with this. I dig it. So I'm going to tell you about a bit about the victims. There were seven people who died and around 50 or so injuries. A lot of them were very severe. I mean, I could really do a part two just on the crazy stories that are associated with the people who didn't die, but had these crazy recovery stories and survival stories. And I mean, there's another episode there, you know, when you say seven people died and like 50 injuries, I think people kind of mentally dismiss the injuries and they're like, Oh, you know, somebody broke their leg or something. They don't realize that like, not only do those injuries probably follow them for the rest of their life, it's probably coupled up with some PTSD, some other, you know, things. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of these, you know, a lot of these are people that could have and should have died. I don't mean should have. You know how I mean should have. People that could have and should have and would have died had it not been for the response immediately after, had it not been for, you know, the incredible medical care that they received. So many of these injuries were catastrophic near-death injuries. So I hate to skim over that, but that's a whole other episode. So Alina Big Johnny was a 23-year-old from Fort Wayne. She was about to begin teaching seventh grade here in Muncie, Indiana, which is where I live. It's about an hour north of Indy. Indy is where this happened. So she was about to start teaching seventh grade here. She had just graduated from college with honors. She got a degree in English and education she had already been to school, like the place she was going to start teaching, and gotten her classroom ready because oh. she was, yeah, that that detail just absolutely broke my heart. Before, because she was, I don't know, when does the school year start? September? She was supposed to start right after this because this was right. in August. She was described as bubbly, always smiling, very smart, giving. She set goals and she smashed them. She was a talented writer, a dancer. She had an infectious excitement and enthusiasm for learning. Oh, she, she would have been an awesome teacher. Oh my gosh, I know. It, it is a loss. She had a standing room only funeral. And then somewhere else there was a candlelight vigil. And then somewhere else there was a memorial with a thousand balloons and glow sticks released into the sky. And I have an aside about this because somebody somewhere has some shit to say about the environment. I know. I don't disagree. You, It is 2020 and you cannot say a thousand balloons reached into the sky without somebody reaching for their keyboard. It is happening. First of all, it was 2011. Second of all, I will die on this hill. The time and the place to talk about more environmentally friendly uh, memorials is just in general. Talk about it. Spread the word. Share some articles. Tell people who didn't just lose a loved one. That's not who you need to take this up with. Every time I see something like this, there is somebody, and it always turns into some comment section bullshit, and I will tell you right now, I'm not here for it. It's tacky. It is tacky, and I get it. There's a time and place. I mean, I totally agree with 
not releasing right first of all it's 2011 did we even know that then i don't know probably not but either way by all means spread the word about the environmental harm of that i'm for the environment i live in it but not to a grieving family stop so that's my aside about that Uh, alina's family has since organized fundraisers to go toward a scholarship fund for education english majors at one of the fundraisers, a survivor showed up who I guess had been standing right next to Alina when the stage collapsed, and the family had never spoken to anyone else who'd been there. Oh and I know. They were able to ask her some questions, like whether there was anything that could have possibly been done for Alina after the stage collapsed, and that other survivor said, no, not at all. And they seemed to get some peace from that. Which is... Totally heartbreaking, but understandable. Alina was there with her best friend and roommate, Jenny Haskell. Jenny was a student at Ball State, which again is in Muncie where I live. She was majoring in, depending on the source, either exercise science or sports medicine. Uh, But it seemed like she was definitely very sporty. She played basketball, softball. She was looking forward to being an athletic trainer. She worked on the landscaping team at her college. Jenny and Alina were sitting in the front row when the stage collapsed, and they were both crushed. Oh, she passed with her best friend. She did. The day that Alina was buried, Jenny died of her injuries after six days. Oh, my gosh. That's about as heartbreaking as it can get. Isn't it? So, a really sad thing, a really sad detail is that all the people, I don't know about all of them, but the vast majority of them, that were under the stage when it collapsed were Sugarland Superfan because they were in the VIP section called the Sugar Pit. Well, that's a cute name. I know. But, I mean, God, that sucks. It's bad enough, but God, I don't know why. That just adds insult to injury for me. I don't want to die in a sugar pit. <laughs> I don't either. So, Christina Santiago was a Bronx native. Her mom died when she was a child. She was living in Chicago with her fiance Alicia at the time of her death, which was about a three-hour drive from the fairgrounds. She sounds cool. She sounds like somebody I'd want to be friends with. She was a powerful advocate for her community. She managed a healthcare center for LGBTQ people. She was described as brilliant, full of life, a fierce warrior, easy to get along with, passionate. Christina and Alicia were one of the first couples to obtain a civil union in Illinois. And they were described as inseparable and were planning a wedding ceremony for the following year. So a few hours before the storm, they had posted on Facebook and said that the night had been perfect. Alicia, Christina's girlfriend, was... This is awful. Alicia was found pinned with metal beams across her chest and face. And two good Samaritans managed to push the beams off of her. Alicia was in critical condition for a while. She did a press conference about a month and a half after the accident. And I mean, her face was still, it was still rough. Right. One of the good Samaritans who pulled it off of her said that when they first saw her, they thought she's going to need major reconstructive surgery if she lives, which I'm sure was the case. She said at the press conference, I was knocked unconscious with her right in front of me on the ground, and I never saw her again. Which, 
the press conference, it's excruciating. It's awful. The health center that Christina managed had a vigil, and one of her colleagues acknowledged that many of the people that she had helped who might have wanted to be there were unable to attend for fear of being seen on camera because of the population that she served, which is a bummer. Oh, yeah, because it's a... Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Kentucky, so... Yeah. I I totally get it. That's It's so unfortunate, you know. So Alicia was a pro football player, and she was not able to play anymore after the accident. She had suffered a traumatic brain injury, and it caused difficulty concentrating for years and all kinds of issues. During the lawsuit, this is a big deal, it became a question of whether Alicia would be eligible for the death benefits benefits, benefits, (laughs) paid out in the settlement because their civil union was recognized in Illinois, but not Indiana. And this was... Oh my God, that's so gross. Exactly. This was this big historic thing because it turned out that this had never been done before. And there were actually, I'll get to this in a minute, two same-sex couples where one of the wives died in the accident. So this, this became an issue for both of them. So the lawsuit ended up officially naming 20 different defendants and a $50 million settlement was finally reached three years after the accident, which marked a historic president setting decision. It was the first time that a same sex partner received the proceeds from a wrongful death benefit in the U S ever. It's going forward, I guess. It is. And it seems so fitting for Christina. I, you know, I certainly wish she was alive to see it happen, but it seems like she would have been happy to see that come out of it. Right. And from what I can gather, it looks like Alicia went into prosthetics since the accident, which is cool as fuck. That is cool. <laughs> I I think prosthetics technology is so cool. <laughs> so... There's not a lot of information available about Glenn Goodrich. I do know that he was a 49-year-old Detroit native. He was an engineer with a law enforcement background, and he was working security at the concert. And he was one of the five who died at the scene. He left behind a wife and two sons, and I couldn't really find much more information about him, unfortunately. Nathan Bird was 51 when the stage collapsed. He was a member of the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees Union. He was a single father to two kids and worked on lighting as a stagehand. And he, hold on to your hat because this is, holy shit, he was on top of the stage when it collapsed. What? On top of it. This five-story, 35-ton stage. Fuck that. That's scary alone without a disaster. Uh Uh-huh. He was on top of it and fixing a light, I think. And here's a little detour for some bullshit. Nathan, unfortunately, he was transported to the hospital, but he did die of his injuries overnight. And there's even more bullshit. So there was another, I think there were there were multiple stagehands on top. There was another stagehand up top with him, I think pretty close to him. And when the stage went down, he... I guess, held on to a beam or something and survived. And this guy didn't catch his name. He went to the ER that night and he was treated in the ER for six hours. I I think I read that maybe he had a broken leg. I don't know. I don't, don't even remotely quote me on that, but he was treated for six hours and then discharged. He didn't need to be admitted. I think that they had 
an influx of admissions, so they were probably really triaging things there. Um, so he had ongoing issues with his injuries. He had back problems. I think he said he had knee problems, and it was pretty debilitating as far as his ability to work. And somebody raised a relief fund for the people who had been injured. And I, it was, I, th- I want to say $900,000. It was quite a lot. I'm not sure who raised it or who was setting the rules about this, but I do know there was a, a big fund and he was, I'm sure, I'm sure other people have similar stories. He was hoping to get some compensation from that fund since he was not really able to work and was not able to because they were only giving relief to people who had been admitted the same night. What? Oh, uh-huh. no. Uh-huh. And he, he had uh, multiple surgeries. He he had all kinds of problems. And he went to the hospital that night, but he wasn't admitted. And you have to assume all of these people coming from one location, you have to assume that they were just swamped. So you have to assume that people who may have otherwise been admitted, if they weren't about to die, weren't. So that double sucks. You know, just because he wasn't admitted doesn't even necessarily mean that he shouldn't have been. Right. Unfortunately, I didn't, I couldn't find if there was any resolution to that or if he ever did get assistance with that. But I read that and that's some that's, bullshit. That's angering. That's angering. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Tammy Van Dam was 42. She was described as loving, supportive, and helpful. Sugarland was her favorite band. She had a 17-year-old daughter, and for some reason, some outlets described her as a single mother, but most of the others were very clear that she was attending the concert with her wife of a decade, Beth. I hate that. It's funny how how that happens, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I read some whole thing about how it was a, a rare opportunity for the single mother to enjoy a night out. And I'm not saying it wasn't rare and she wasn't enjoying a night out, but she's not a single mother. <laughs> right. So she'd been married to Beth for a decade. Beth was also badly injured. One of her toes was crushed. Another was severed. She suffered nerve damage, a broken clavicle, several other injuries. Fortunately, Beth, like Alicia, did receive some death benefits for Tammy, as well as some for her own injuries, despite their marriage in Hawaii not being recognized in Indiana. So that's kind of crazy that we happen to have two lesbian couples in the same uh, sugar pit. But as far as historic presence, that is, I love it. I'm so happy that that was the outcome of that. And Megan Toothman lived at home with her parents, her brother and her sister. She had traveled a few hours from Cincinnati to see Sugarland. This girl, I hope you were sitting down because or drinking some coffee because just reading about what she had going on makes me tired. I'm, <laughs> this girl, I'm she was the head. Down. <laughs> <laughs> she was the head cheerleading coach for Turpin High School. She had everything going on. The list of clubs and activities that she was involved in would, I mean, I can't even list it. You'd be here all night. She was 24 years old and had already earned a master's degree in education and was enrolled in a graduate program to be a school psychologist, which she graduated posthumously with her cohort, which is awful. But, you know, I guess good, but awful. She loved concerts. She'd been to a bunch that summer. She was crushed by the stage, but she did 
make it to the hospital, and two days later she was placed in a coma to attempt to reduce brain swelling. But a week later, a scan revealed extensive irreversible brain damage, and her family said that they realized that she was no longer with them and that they intended to let her be at peace and donate her organs, which ultimately saved at least two lives with her kidneys. Including oh, that's someone, beautiful. I know. Someone who had been on the donor list for a while, I think, I, I believe, so they said there was a mother of four, and uh, she was the final victim to die. Oh, my God. Gosh, that's so heavy. I know, I know. But I just, I I can't help but think that if, like I said, if I had lost someone, I would not listen to a podcast that's just like, oh my God, and then the tarp turned into a parachute, the whole thing fell down, and, and, and this whole rubbernecking thing, and I wouldn't be okay with it if they hadn't talked about talked about the, the people. life loss yeah so i'm sorry for first episode that does end a little heavier than one might prefer but these I, people it, it was why were there so done. many cool people in one place god at a sugarland concert uh, yeah right but i mean these people were moving and shaking they had stuff happening stuff going on they were Lots of things were changed because of them. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. In a good way. For for a whole bunch of these, something incredible came out of it. You know, the stage collapses, and then three seconds later, you have half the audience running back in to pull people out of it. And, you know, we've got 20 defendants being named. We have this historic settlement for same-sex couples, which is incredible, and and then we've got Megan Toothman and her kidneys, which is incredible. So this, God, this is all over the place. There's a lot uh, going on. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, and that is what I have for you tonight. I think that is an amazing way to kick off our first episode of March. I hope so. That it's one is so good. near and dear to my heart. We go to the fair every year. I love it. It is... I look forward to it all year long, and this is just, it's just unfathomable. Watch the video. I know you've already watched the video, but anybody who's listening to this, watch the video. It's Yeah, we'll definitely have to link all that stuff on our social media so everyone can check it out. But yeah, I don't think I will ever go to an outdoor concert again without thinking of this story. There's no way. Well, the good news for your potential future outdoor concerts is that there were some things changed after this as far as building code for temporary stages. So that's good. I I think things, I mean, this wasn't even as safe as it was supposed to be then, but things are a little bit more stringent now. So hopefully that did some future good, averted some tragedies. Brianne, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, we could leave it there. I burped. <laughs> I think we can leave it there. <laughs> okay. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to support us further, you can find us at patreon.com slash marksafepodcast. There's a bunch of goodies on there, including shout outs, final stickers, and bonus content. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at marksafepodcast. Huge thanks to Joshua Hooper for our amazing podcast cover art, and also to Dusty Bow and Brandon for our incredible music intro. And thank you, our listeners, for sharing and subscribing. We hope you stay safe. See you later, my friends.